Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is Susan Rogers. She is a cognitive neuroscientist and a professor at Berklee College of Music, as well as a multi-platinum record producer. Her new book is This Is What It Sounds Like, What the Music You Love Says About You, which is published by our friends at Norton. Susan, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm waving and I'm realizing it's a podcast and they can't see. But uh, so uh, imagine that I'm waving to you and I'm saying thank you uh, for allowing me to be on this program and talk about music. Thank you, Susan. Uh, We're all waving back and it's an (laughs) honor to have you here today. Um, Susan, my first question for you in the overture to this wonderful book, You describe an experience at a Led Zeppelin concert that led you to become a recording engineer for Prince. Um, This story has stuck in my mind uh, ever since I read it. I've thought about it every day. Could you recount this story for our listeners? Yeah, I grew up in Southern California in Anaheim and uh, had a a difficult childhood, not because my parents weren't wonderful, but because they were. And my mother got sick and and died and passed away after a long illness. So in order to just have some kind of future, at 17 years old, I ended up marrying someone who was 21 years old. He seemed so much older. And we got married. And in short order, I discovered that he was so jealous and possessive, but he was especially possessive and jealous of my relationship with music. I loved I loved records. I loved music. And so this guy would only approve certain artists, artists that he liked for me to listen to when I was banned from liking anybody else. I, I, my dad wasn't like that. I hadn't grown up in a household like that, but I mean, just there really was nowhere to turn for help. So my favorite band, Led Zeppelin, was coming into town and I, through friends at work, I got a ticket to see that show. And all my friends at work knew I was a music nut and how excited I was for this concert. So the concert was at the Forum, the Forum Arena in Los Angeles. And the person I was married to finally gave permission for me to go. But he said, you have to be home by 1030. And I didn't know I hadn't been to a concert before. So I looked at this ticket and it said eight o'clock was when it started. So I figured, all right, well, that seems reasonable. I guess I'll be home by 1030. We've got a deal. And I get to the Forum with my friends and... um, (laughs) <laughs> they didn't even take the stage until nine o'clock and 9 9.45. And this band was on fire. This was the song remains the same tour. And it was just one of the greatest things I'd ever seen in my life. And the mm-hmm. sound was just amazing. And I was in ecstasy and I kept looking at my watch and I realized one of two things is going to happen. Either I'm going to stay here and face holy hell when I get home and possibly some violence that wasn't unheard of. But the worst part about that is he'll never allow me to go to another concert again as long as I live. Or I can just go home, let there be peace in the house, and let me just see, you know, maybe I'll I'll, I'll work on him and explain, you know, concerts go later, and and the next concert I can stay a little later. So I thought, okay, I'm going home. And I had to turn to my friends and say, you guys, I have to leave. And they just looked at me, just disbelieving. What? What, this is, you've been looking forward to this is all you've been talking about. 
I just, I have to leave. And I left. But as I'm walking up the um, the stands, I stopped and I looked at the forum. I looked at the rafters up in the ceiling and I thought to myself, I'll go. But I vow, I vow I'm going to come back here someday. And I'm going to mix live sound for a great band. And no one is going to tell me to leave this building. That was my little vow. So I turned around and off I went. And there was peace at home. And but not for long because I managed to escape and get out of there. So I got out of there not long afterward, less than a year afterward, and went, moved to Hollywood, not that far away, began work as an audio technician. And five years later, um, I'm, I'm a technician, an audio technician repairing consoles and tape machines in the greater Los Angeles area. I was working for a studio owned by uh, Graham Nash and David Crosby of Crosby, Stills and Nash. Then I heard through the grapevine, Prince, my favorite artist, was looking for an audio technician. I knew he liked working with women. I knew I had the goods. I was a good technician at this point, very well trained. So I got that gig. And I'd been uh, been his employee. Uh, that's, I think we did the forum in the spring of 85. Maybe I really don't remember. But I joined him in August of 83. We were on the Purple Rain tour. And one of the gigs we played, in fact, let me be more precise, seven of the gigs we played, because we had the record at that point for the most nights ever sold out at the Forum, was at the Forum. We did seven nights at the Forum and 10 nights at the Long Beach Arena, broke all records. Then Neil Diamond came along and, and broke our record. But at the time, we had that record. Uh, I wasn't mixing live sound at that Prince show, but I was doing something that was actually even better in my mind. We had a mobile recording truck, as you do at the big shows, it was parked behind uh, the forum and I was recording this, this concert, I was recording this, this show. And uh, so after sound check, during sound check, if you're the engineer, you're gonna make a, a little mixtape. And, and, and I brought that cassette of the mix back to Prince in his dressing room. And, and we talked over, Prince didn't like to make small talk. You just couldn't you know, chew the fat with Prince. So I got right to my point. Uh, here's what it sounds like. Here's what I think we should maybe change. And give him this cassette so he can listen to it. And then I just had to, I just had to share this. I didn't talk with him about personal stuff, but this was such a big deal. And I said, Prince, I got to tell you something. And then I just briefly recapped that story from eight years earlier. And I said, um, I just want to say thank you. You are the one who made this dream come true. And I'll never forget the look on his face. His face just lit up. He didn't say anything, but I knew Prince. I was with him every day for over four years. I knew that face and that face just said, yeah, me too. He, he was a kid two years younger than me. I was 27, 28. He was two years younger. We were... Our dreams were coming true. We were just kids and and it felt so good. And I, and I did, before I left the forum that night, I did walk through that empty arena after our show. And I looked up at those rafters and I said, I told you. <laughs> that was just my Scarlet O'Hara gun with the wind moment, but it felt great. Yeah, right on. That's a fantastic story. Thank you so much. And like you, uh, music is very, very, very important to me. And my wonderful life, wife, uh, Claire, is very supportive of uh, my music endeavors um, to the point of excess, um, thankfully. But I can imagine if I had married someone that was restricting my access to music like that, that would that would be the end of that. 
Um, yeah, but uh, I, I sometimes ask people who are music lovers, could you be in a relationship with someone who, who doesn't like the same music as you? And some people say no, and some say yes, but I have to admit, I've thought about it. It would be hard for me to connect with mm -hmm. people whose taste in music was completely the opposite of mine. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. I haven't experienced that yet, but I don't, I don't know. It could be hard. Yeah, sure could. You know, at least there needs to be that overlap in the, the Venn diagram of musical tastes. Um, do you know, happen to know the tour that Led Zeppelin was on when you saw them? Was that the tour that they drew material um, from for their live album, How the West Was Won? I don't remember about that live album, but there was a movie. Yeah. There was a, an ill-advised right. concert film of The Song Remains the Same uh, that had yeah. these four vignettes in it. And it wasn't such a hot idea. The movie was a little bit laughable, but the yeah. the, the concert footage was just crazy great. They were at the peak of their rock god, rock god status. Yes, yes. Well, um, if you haven't heard the live album, which came out, I don't know, maybe... 20 years ago or so uh i would check it out because it's all from west coast shows and i believe it's from the period between led zeppelin four and houses of the holy um but if you haven't listened to it it's remarkably well recorded and engineered um to move on from this story susan you once met miles davis at prince's home uh, what was this like and how is your conversation with miles like jamming uh, it turned out that Miles was a huge Prince fan, and of course it was reciprocal. I mean, Miles was just kind of a god to all musicians, still is, even posthumously. So Prince called me at home. We were in Minneapolis, and he called me and he said, Miles is coming to dinner tonight. Pull these tapes out of the vault because Prince had a studio uh, downstairs basement of his home and he wanted to after dinner he wanted to be able to put up some tapes and offer some songs to miles so i sped over to the house with these tapes and was down in the, the basement studio waiting and i could hear three men upstairs talking and those three men were prince miles davis and prince's dad john nelson who was a jazz piano player loosely portrayed in the movie uh purple rain so Prince's dad and Miles Davis were having this conversation about pants. They came down to the studio and the two old men talking about these pants. And I'm waiting by the tape machine and Miles comes and he parks himself right in front of me, but with his back to me. So he's standing there and he's facing John Nelson and they're talking about pants. And John Nelson is complimenting Miles on these pants. And he's saying, I like those pants. They both kind of talk like this, I like those pants he wears. Miles is saying, what pants? Those striped pants. I don't own any striped pants. Yes, you do. I've seen you on TV. Where did you see me on TV? At the Grammys, I saw you. And they're going back and forth about whether these pants exist. And without warning, Miles spins around, puts his face. He had these big globular eyes, puts his face right in front of my face. And he says, just holding stock still. He says, yes, I do. They're made out of eel, like in <laughs> Vietnam. And those words just don't go together. And I just held my ground and I said, eel, like in Vietnam? And he just said, who are you? Where are you from? What do you do? How long you been here? Just questions. Bam, 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 bam. And, you know, I mean, I worked for the little guy in the high heels sitting over there in the corner. So you weren't going to intimidate me that easily. So I just went toe to toe with him and held my ground. And he fired off questions and I fired off answers. And then he said, you a musician? And I said, no. He said, that's all right. 
some of the best musicians I know aren't musicians. He turned around and it was over. I spent, I still spend time thinking about that. This would have been in 87, so 35 years ago, thinking about that and what he meant. Some of the best musicians I know aren't musicians. Now, I've spoken with Marcus Miller and other musicians who played with him, and they said, yeah, he would tell us in rehearsal, play like a non-musician, which doesn't mean play with no technique. It means be free to express yourself, whether or not your technique can support your ideas. So I began to recognize, it took time, it took a lot of time, but I began to recognize that me being a non-musician had a musicianship and that I expressed my musicianship as non-musician music lovers do in my capacity to listen. I mean, music comes alive. Once it gets up here in our heads, underneath our skulls, that's where music takes on a unique identity. You and I could both listen to the same song right now, and your listeners as well. We could all listen to the same song. Acoustically, it's the same thing. But once it's in our heads, it's a unique entity that only belongs to you and you alone. Your choice of music and how you respond to it is your musicianship. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. And I love your description of uh, Miles Davis globular is a good word. Um, <laughs> So, Susan, um, you're talking about the act of listening to music. Is this book, uh, this is what it sounds like, an attempt to break the act of listening to music down academically? It is. It is exactly. Uh, I had a, a number of goals. One, of course, is to share this topic that I've been talking about for over 40 years and I'm so passionate about. But to make the non-musicians feel like they, too, are a legitimate part of the conversation of how music works. They're the ones who are actually, in part, along with musicians, of course, making it work. So when I was in the recording studio for over 20 years, at the end of the night, you're exhausted. You know, these are long days. You're exhausted, but you're tired and wired. You're just too tired to go home and sleep. So you sit around with the producers, the engineers, the musicians, the assistant, you sit around and conversation inevitably is going to turn to music. And uh, people will start talking about, oh, I worked with this person in the studio. You wouldn't believe how great this person is. Or I saw this band live, it blew me away. Or I'm listening to this record right now. And in those kinds of conversations, we all sort of became equal because we all went in our minds back to where we all started, which is as music listeners. Young kids who are passionate about music may go on to become musicians. They may become producers or engineers. They may become DJs, music business executives. They may become artist management. They can do all sorts of things in the realm of music, but we start from the same place. We are listeners. I've wanted the casual music lover to feel like their voice in the conversation was valid and was important. And uh, and also, I, I hope that readers who might not be in touch with their listener profile would go through this book and would learn a little bit more about themselves as a musical listener. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Susan. Um, I want to ask you about 
record polls. And um, I'm going to tell you about an event that my friends and I have uh, sort of similar after um, you tell us about record polls. But for our listeners, Susan, what is a record poll? We used to do a record poll sometimes when we were making an album and you hit a wall creatively. Producer might say, all right, folks, it's time for a record poll. And what you have to do is you have to come to the poll with two or three records that just wipe you out, that just make you swoon. I like to just call that the music of me or the music of you. It's it's your deepest most intimate relationship with music. So you come and you bring a record that you just love and have loved for years. Maybe you fell in love with it at first listen, but it doesn't matter how you fell in love with it, you're in love. And when it's your turn, you go around the room, when it's your turn, you play your record. But what you have to do, this is the rule, you have to explain for your poll mates why. Why this record? What is it about this record that just causes your knees to buckle? It might be the lyrics, might be the chord changes, might be the innovation in the sound design. It may have caused an epiphany for you in some way. Describe for us where your mind goes when you're hearing this record and what's the big treat that you find when you listen to this record. So the, the thing that's great about record polls is one, you get to share the music of you with your friends. Two, your friends do the same for you. So you get to know your friends a little bit better. This is an intimate kind of sharing. When we listen to music, we're in our own heads privately. This is a private space. So you're sharing a little bit of that private space, deep emotions, thoughts, feelings, bringing that up, letting your friends know about it. And then the third thing that's great is you get turned on to music that you might fall in love with that you might otherwise never have listened to. But when someone takes that love and points toward this is what I love, that can sometimes increase liking in you. Uh, certainly my students have taught me to like genres of music that I never would have paid any attention to, but their love led me to those genres, pointed out what they loved about it, and certainly increased my appreciation of American hardcore and electronic dance music and math metal. Uh, yeah, that's how it works. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Susan. My friends and I, like a core group of my friends, have an annual event around the holidays called Listmas, where we all come up with, say, our top 25, 30 albums of the year. Um, and we all give our lists to my wife, Claire, who has uh, an uninterested third party compiles them and you know like number 30 gets one point number 29 gets two points and then she makes a master list and then makes a countdown playlist that none of us see until listmas day and then we all celebrate the music of the year by uh listening to it counting down what our compiled best albums of the year are um and then after that it usually uh, evolves into a, a record poll with whatever time we can stay awake for the rest of the night um but a very cool event. I recommend anyone out there who loves listening to new music try something similar out. That's a wonderful idea. And it's almost like a book club in kind of a way. Yeah. Uh, not quite. But do do you feel like you get to know your friends better through that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because we find out, you know, and over the years, I think we're almost 10 years into this tradition now. You know, we we figure out who likes what or what albums, you know. Reggie is going to like or, or Mike is going to like etc um, and, and kind of like play the odds where we guess who's got what albums ranked where throughout the year etc anyway it's really fun 
That sounds great. I'm going to remember that idea. Please do. Um, I want to talk to you now about the chapter of your book called Authenticity, um, in which you compare the act of listening to Bach to the act of listening to the shags. Um, many of you may be unfamiliar with the shags. I think uh, my friend pointed out to me that they were um Kurt Cobain's, I think, top five albums of all time or some such thing. Um, I suspect that many of our listeners are more familiar with Bach, like I said, but what is remarkable about the shags and specifically the song that you chose to have your readers listen to? Mm. The shags were three sisters, Betty, Helen, and Dot, who grew up in rural New Hampshire in the 1960s. And their dad, who was just a simple mill worker, didn't make a lot of money, believed that his daughters were destined to form a rock band, pop band. They'd be very famous. So dad pulled his girls out of school, wouldn't let them date or see boys. Dad forced his three teenage daughters to play these musical instruments, bass, drums, and guitar. He named them the Shags, and uh, he forced them to write songs. And they did. They were good girls. They did as they were told. Um, when they had compiled a dozen songs or so, Dad managed to raise the money to take them down to, a, to Boston to a recording studio, brought them in the studio, set them up. And the engineers at the studio were the first industry people to hear the shags. And the engineers, they report that they just locked the door and just rolled on the floor laughing. The shags, musically, technically speaking, are awful. So if you listen to the album Philosophy of the World, you will hear practically no technique whatsoever. The instruments, they don't even know how to tune them. The drums are out of time. The fills come in odd places and they, they land in odd places. And, and yet, the reason the shags are a touchstone for people in the music industry, like Kurt Cobain or Frank Zappa, or certainly myself and the, the other record makers I knew, is that because the shags have no formal musical training or technique whatsoever, what comes through is pure, undiluted intentionality. The shags are to music what a child's finger painting is to art. The baby gets there on the floor and has the crayons or the finger paints or something and does a little little drawing of the house and there's mom and dad. And, and you put that on the refrigerator. You're not going to put it in an art museum. It has no technique whatsoever. What it has is baby's intention to show you, this is my world. These are my people. This is where I live. This is my frame of reference for the world. And likewise with the shags, the lyrics are on the surface, very simple, but surprisingly deep. Their song philosophy of the world says, well, the rich people want what the poor people got. And the girls with long hair want what the girls with short hair have. And the fat people want what the skinny people have. There's a, there's a, there's a genius in there. There's a purity of intention. It's important to makers of art to never lose sight of that intentionality. As my friend, the musician Tommy Jordan says, the wrong note played with gusto always sounds better than the right note played timidly. The shags play with gusto. They play with gusto. And you might have a band of well-trained musicians who are sitting there in the studio and they're just phoning it in. Yeah, they, they played all the notes right. Big deal. They had no no feeling, no intentionality, no heart, no soul in that music. So the chapter on authenticity is describing 
our subjective impression of where the musical performance is coming from. Is that singer singing her little heart out? Is that bass player feeling that bass part in his belly button, in his groin? Is he flirting or lusting with that bass? Now, someone like Bach, who had so much soul, same with Beethoven, same with Ella Fitzgerald, so much soul, so much perfect technique that they can do both. They can express impeccable technique, but at the same time be grounded to a deeper level of feeling that comes from below the neck. The shags were quite simply below the neck, nothing above the neck going on there, um, but lesser musicians are above the neck only. And they're not really feeling anything. Yeah, thank you, Susan. The way that you wrote about um, the Shag's music reminded me of this album called Eternal Dreams by a guy named Joel, where it was, you know, like the record starts and it's obviously some like Casio keyboard music beat and then these notes play and they're not musical at all. They're all over the place. These strangely profound lyrics are warbled out and then all of a sudden, the backup vocals come on and they're perfectly synced up and you're like none of this is making sense but these guys know exactly what's going on um and it's like kind of when you're staring at one of those magic eye paintings and it just looks like a bunch of nonsense but then you see it and it makes sense and you're like is this musically ridiculous or do i just not get it yet it's just really interesting when that's you really that. cool yeah, that's really cool. So uh, the scholar Friedrich Schiller talked about two opposite poles, the sentimental versus the naive. The naive means absent of knowledge. You have no training, no technique. And that's what a child's finger painting is. It's naive art. They don't know how to do it. They just know what they want to do. The opposite pole is sentimental art. That's art that's capable ex of expressing any sentiment, even if you yourself aren't feeling it. Like Beethoven could write about anger or he could write about, I don't know, pity or any emotion, even if he wasn't feeling it because he was such a maestro. All artists start as naive artists, but as they get training, they become sentimental. The trick is to then walk it back to that naive point and be an Ella Fitzgerald. Got all the technique in the world, but you also know what it feels like to want to connect with people using your voice or your piano or your orchestration or whatever it is. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Susan. Listeners, we are going to take a short break here for a word from our sponsor, and I will be right back with Susan Rogers. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. 
I'm back with Susan Rogers, author. This is what it sounds like, which is published by our friends at Norton. Susan, in the next chapter of your book titled Realism, you describe the different things that go on in a person's mind when they listen to music. What are these things in which category, Susan, do you fall under? Mm. So this uh, little bit of research that we did for this book came about because my co-author, Ogi Ogas, and I just could not be more opposite in our musical taste. And uh, we're both scientists, we're both PhDs, and boy, did I make a stupid assumption that no scientist should ever make. I assumed that when people listen to music for fun, just for recreation, not to learn a part or anything like that, but just for fun, that their minds visualize the same sort of thing that I visualize, which is the band in the studio. And when I was a little kid, before I'd ever been in a studio, I visualized the band on stage. When I listen to music, I picture the performers, and I always have. I just assumed that everyone does. But I was talking with Ogie, and I asked him, what do you see in your mind's eye? And he said, oh, abstract shapes and colors. And we're both looking at each other thinking that's so weird. Turns out, Oki's favorite music is electronic music or instrumental music. He doesn't want to be distracted by lyrics. He doesn't want to be able to picture the musicians. When he was younger, he liked bands like Kraftwerk because he likes the electronic music that allows his mind to experience these flights of fancy. He sees other worlds, uh, science fiction worlds and things like this. And then sometimes the shapes and colors, that's his treat. That's where his mind wants to go. And he chooses music that facilitates that treat. For me, I choose music that facilitate my treat. I choose music made by real human beings playing real musical instruments, instruments I'm familiar with, bass, drums, piano, guitar, things like that. Uh, we were trying to figure out which one of us is the most normal. So we did a survey monkey survey and we surveyed uh, almost 1700 people in the United States asking, where does your mind, what do you visualize? Where does your mind go when you listen to your favorite music? Turns out Ogie and I were both in the minority. The majority of people visualize autobiographical memories when they listen to their favorite music. They see people or places or events in their own life that that music prompts. And often they choose music in order to take that trip down memory lane to experience nostalgia. It feels good for them. The uh, second most common visualization, which really surprised me, was the story in the lyrics. Many, many, many people pay close attention to the lyrics and they visualize a story that may not include the artist, may not include themselves, <clears throat> pardon me, or it might, Anyway, they visualize a story on the lyrics. So naturally, those listeners are going to gravitate towards a certain kind of musical artist who tells them a good story so they can find the treat that they're looking for. Other people visualize themselves performing. Sometimes people visualize nature scenes, the mountains or the beach or the ocean or something like that. Some younger people, especially those who are into electronic music, either see the abstract shapes and colors that Ogie does, but there were a few youngsters, because we had people report their ages, a few youngsters who visualized, as one said, I see the room that goes with this music. He was a young video gamer, and the young video gamers are accustomed to navigating through these different 
environmental spaces as music plays. It seems quite likely to me that the music we love best is chosen in part for its capacity to facilitate a visualization treat that we enjoy having. Absolutely. Thank you, Susan. I always picture myself playing the music. That's what I do when I when I hear it. All right, Susan. Well, um, let's move on here. There is a moment in your book uh, when we talk about art or we read about art in a moment in time when photography uh, became sort of widely available to people and how that changed the work that painters were doing. You relate this directly to the emergence of uh, DAW's digital audio workstations and how that has cha uh, changed both the production and the distribution of music. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what's going on here? Yeah, in the mid 19th century, leading up to the mid 19th century, the painter's job was to capture reality and you, you learned your techniques so well that you can go to someone's house and do a portrait of their family. All right, you guys, wear these clothes, stand over here. I'm going to adjust the lighting. And this will only take a week, so hang on. And with your impeccable craftsmanship, you could paint a portrait of that family and capture. Here's what they looked like. Then uh, in the mid-1800s, when the camera came along, all of a sudden there was a revolution because it doesn't take a week anymore to capture what your family looks like. You set the family up and get them in their Sunday best, put that little wooden box in front of them, squeeze that bulb and bammo, you've got a photograph. So what did that do to painters? I mean, painters were no doubt demoralized. All these techniques they had learned to capture reality were overnight being rendered, seemed like obsolete. And the handwriting was on the wall these cameras are going to get better and easier to use. And this is now going to revolutionize the visual arts. Well, the same thing happened to my generation of recording engineers in the late 20th century, when someone came along with the little silicon box. And um, when the when laptop recording, desktop recording came along, thanks to digital audio workstations, I'll be damned if all those techniques that I and my peers had mastered, the techniques of mic choice, mic placement, drum tuning, setting up a room, managing acoustic bleed, getting capturing reality so that listeners could have that visualization of this is what happened in the studio. This is how it sounded. It was rendered pretty much obsolete. It took a long time to get a perfect kick drum. A lot of things had to come into place with a digital audio workstation and sample libraries. A kid can just say, oh, you, you want to you kick drum? And, you know, a few clicks of the keyboard, a few clicks of the mouse and tick, tick, tick. There's your kick drum. Perfect. Oh, you want a different one? You want a larger one? You want a smaller one? No problem. <laughs> so suddenly all of our techniques were rendered somewhat obsolete. Now the painter J.M.W. Turner in the 19th century didn't freak out when cameras came along. Instead of feeling like his career was over, he realized he was free. If I don't have to paint reality, I can paint what life feels like. 
because I don't have to paint what it looks like. Let the little wooden box show you what it looks like. I'm going to show you what life feels like. And he is credited with starting the movement that led to abstract art, Jackson Pollock and Picasso. And uh, today, James Terrell, who doesn't even use paint, he uses just light to get you to feel something. So likewise, that revolution is happening right now in music recordings. We don't have to capture what actually happened in the recording studio the way my generation did. So now our mandate is to capture the essence of how music makes us feel. Because we can use any techniques we want. We've got these sample libraries, we've got environmental sounds, we can manipulate sounds such that we can make sounds that don't physically exist anywhere in the world. It's a whole new ball game for young record makers, but it's also new marching orders because they have the tools to get us to think about music in brand new ways and to experience it in new ways. Uh, we're just we're just in the early years of that revolution. I predict that the, the, the trend-setting artists of the next few decades will be those who are manipulating timbres, sound itself, in ingenious and new ways. Absolutely, and I look forward to hearing it. Thank you, Susan. Um, my friend, Casey Lightman was visiting me from uh, San Francisco here in Aspen in the Roaring Fork Valley last week, and we went to Red Rocks to see a band, King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, uh, who I was delighted to see come up in your book. Um, I'm hoping for our listeners that you can describe what is the novel popularity curve and where does a band like King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard fall on right. this curve? So many years ago, 50 some odd years ago, uh, Berlin, it was his name, a scientist named Berlin, published something that was hugely influential. He explained that we like our stimuli, our food, our movies, our books, TV programs, our music. We like our stimuli personally to be in that Goldilocks zone between not too novel, not too complex, and stimulating and not too boring, not too simple. So if you're picturing a graph and on the x-axis there's simplicity, we can also call it familiarity on the far left of the x-axis, novelty and complexity on the far right of the x-axis. Now picture that the y-axis is, in our case, record sales. You're going to have underneath that graph the familiar bell-shaped curve. So the top of that bell-shaped curve is pop music. It's the most popular music. It's music that sells the most. Popular music, doesn't matter what genre it is. It was funk in my era. It was disco for a while. It was folk music for a while. Pop is just whatever has managed to find the just right blend for this year of novelty and familiarity. So a record at the top of the pop charts might be familiar enough that we can ground it in our previous existing knowledge. We, we know to anticipate. So if you picture the x-axis as simple, familiar on the left-hand side, complex and novel on the right-hand side, and the y-axis as popularity, the most popular music is that perfect combination of enough familiar items, like a 4-4 time signature, eight bars maybe, or a familiar key, familiar consonant melody, with just enough unfamiliar, novel, complex items to engage us mentally. That might be innovative lyrics. That might be 
innovative sound design. It typically is in these days. It might be an inventive rhythm, Timbaland and Just Blaze and other, other producers really helped advance that trend in, in the late 20th century. So all of us have a sweet spot on this curve. If you're on the right side of the curve, that's where I am. You don't like music necessarily that is the most complex, that being freeform jazz or maybe glitch hop or circuit bending. That might be just a little bit beyond the pale. Those records don't sell a lot. But for me personally, when I go seeking out a new record, I got to hear something new. I need a heavier dose of novelty in my music. I like King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard because I get a heavier dose of novelty and that's pleasing for me. That's a treat. For other listeners, that's very aversive. If you're on the left side of that bell curve, which sells just as many records, you're not necessarily listening for novelty when you check out a new artist. You want, just like any sports fan, to get your familiar form. You know how this song's going to go. It's not going to break any musical rules. But the technique is perfect. The guitar playing, the mandolin playing, the fiddle playing, the singing, the lyrics are just right for you. Perfect. So we all have a sweet spot when it comes to musical stimuli, some leaning toward more familiarity, some leaning toward more novelty, and the majority liking that perfect blend right up there at the top of the pop charts. The ironic thing is that me, I'm a thrill seeker when it comes to music. I like my art movies. I like my art books that the critics like. I tend to like that. But my taste in fashion, my taste in food is very conservative. I don't, I don't want to be surprised by food. I'm going to go with the familiar every time. I, I don't, I don't, I've made some bad choices with fashion. So I'm going to stick to safe with fashion. We can be adventurous in one realm or modality, and we can be more conservative in others. Absolutely. Thank you, Susan. Um, speaking of uh, free jazz um, and the learning of patterns, how does exposure to something like free jazz at a young age affect how one listens to music as one gets older? Well, uh, there's a biologist named Darcy Thompson who said century ago or so, he said, everything is the way it is because it got that way. Um, our little brains are the most plastic and growing the fastest when we're young. So you're learning what normal is in food and fashion and conversation and social behaviors and television shows and, and, and music. You're learning what normal is. I don't know many young children that were raised on a diet of free-form jazz, but that would be kind of rough. I did have one student at Berkeley who was raised exclusively on a diet of jazz and classical. The parents forbade this student from listening to pop or rock or any of the any of the popular styles of music. And uh, did it make this student more musical? No, it did not. And the kid described being in high school and wanting to fit in socially and having to actually teach himself through the help of his friends how to appreciate rock and pop and hip hop and grunge and all the stuff that was popular when he was a kid in high school. So humans evolved to be the way they are and we, we generally don't like freeform jazz because it's cognitively too difficult 
to make it really enjoyable. Freeform jazz and music that's similar to freeform jazz aims to be as unpredictable as possible, to have a very complex structure. Well, that takes some of the joy out of it. When you have to work really hard to follow, see if there's any theme in there or to anticipate changes in the rhythm or the sections, it's too much work. We like our music to be somewhat predictable. This is why we love our 4-4 four, four time signatures. We love certain rhythms that feel good to our body, certain tempos that feel good, not too fast, not too slow. We like music that seems like a good fit, just like many people love a cheeseburger or a, a simple slice of pizza or something like that. It's, yeah, it's not the best food ever made, but it's a good fit fit and I don't have to work too hard to appreciate it. It's the same thing with our music. So those who were exposed to music that was cognitively taxing when they were young may actually, I'm guessing here, develop an aversion to some forms of music because it's too stimulating. You don't feed hot sauce to a little baby and uh, you probably shouldn't feed really complex music to a little baby either. Let's start slow. Let's start with children's music, lullabies and play songs and work our way up to something that's more sophisticated if you've got an appetite for the, that sort of thing. And if you don't, it shouldn't be forced on anyone. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Susan. Um, you're just reminding me of, of my very young son who loves hot sauce and, mm -hmm. and Kamasi Washington and Black Sabbath and all these. Okay. Things. <laughs> you got an adventurer on your hands. That's <laughs> yeah, it. Um, well, my final question for you, Susan, um, one thing that we haven't talked about that affects uh, listening is the age old question of art versus artist. Um, as I look forward to uh, my event with my friends, Listmas 2022, and think about like the top 30, 40 albums that have come out this year, two very good albums are by the Arcade Fire and uh, Ryan Adams, both of whom I feel very like much like a terrible person for listening to them right now. Um, and we've talked about people like uh, Prince, Miles Davis, Led Zeppelin, who you may not be able to disassociate the art from the artist at certain moments of time. For them, it was easier maybe in the age before social media. Um, but how do you feel about the conversation of art versus artist and whether um, an artist's personal story, uh, maybe failings, successes, personalities should affect how we listen to the music they produce. That's funny that you should bring that up. I just finished reading Ian McEwan's latest novel, Lessons, and that's one of the many rhetorical questions in that book. The question of, um, it seems to fall on the, the side of the answer being yes. The question is, the better the artist the more forgiving should we be? In other words, if someone is a Picasso, this may suggest that someone who is a talent on the order of Picasso, that person can be forgiven more transgressions, more social and moral transgressions than someone who is a pretty lousy artist. So all of us as human beings have an obligation to be members of society and to obey the social contract. But not everyone can or does all the time. I, I, I'm, I haven't thought it through completely, but I'm kind of leaning in that direction a little bit, that if the art is truly exceptional and is advancing the state of the art 
and is pushing the envelope such that this artist is spawning imitators and taking the whole field with him or her forward in a good and important direction, that it would be wrong to dismiss their work for their personal failings. It would be wrong for the greater good. Uh, we might not get as many wonderful young artists following in their wake if we simply pulled them out of the river and didn't let them have a wake. Um, th there are grades, gradations, you know, of, um, of transgressions. I know when Prince was young, he was guilty of more of them than when he got older. He was a young man of his time when it wasn't, it was considered funny with scene in the movie Purple Rain to Jerome picks up a woman and puts her in a trash can and oh, isn't that funny, ha ha ha, you wouldn't do that today. I know Prince certainly wouldn't do that today, but the, the times change as well. So it'd be wrong of us to take today's sensibility, point it at someone 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago and, and, and judge them through the same lens. That's how I feel about this today anyway. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for that answer, Susan. And thank you for writing this magnificent book. As a music lover, as a book lover, this is the perfect book for me. And I know it will be for many of you too. Listeners, I have been speaking with Susan Rogers, author. This is what it sounds like, which is published by our friends at Norton. Susan, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Jason, so much. Thanks, Rebecca, for helping to organize this. This was really a delightful conversation. I really appreciate it. Once again, I would like to thank Susan Rogers for joining me. Copies of This Is What It Sounds Like can be ordered from www.explorebooksellers.com with free shipping for members of Explore More. I would also like to thank our sponsors, Libro FM Audiobooks and Quell Ridge Books. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jefferies, and this has been Bookin'.